I don't know about some of you guys. I'm 65 years old, and there are a few that's older than me. Well, <laughs> a few. <laughs> I can count them on one hand, actually, but and the last. But <laughs> you get a little more emotional as you get older, it seems. But uh, if your father's alive today, you're fortunate. Make sure he knows how much you love him, regardless of what kind of dad he was. I guess I look back, and all of us here have fathers, and we can, we can picture them now as we mention this in our minds, and some of them we might classify as a good dad and some not so good, but nonetheless, they, they were our father, and um, we miss them. And I know in my life, I've probably been too critical of my dad, so I regret that a little bit, you know, so and he's gone, and you can't change that. <laughs> You can't imagine in 35 years of ministry how many regrets I've seen in front of an open casket. Well, you know, they just, they just wasn't the kind of parent that I wanted them to be, so I, I just couldn't get to that point where I could say that I forgave them or whatever, and, and boy, you're standing there and you're looking down at that shell of a body whose spirit is gone. You can say all you want, but it doesn't do any good then. The things that need to be said need to be said while we're breathing. The love of a father. Matthew 10, 29 through 31. This is an amazing passage of scripture when we think about the intricacies of God's love and how much he loves us and how intimate he is with us. Not even a sparrow worth only half a penny can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered, so don't be afraid. You are more valuable to him than a whole flock of sparrows. The big idea this morning is us earthly fathers need the heart of God. It's not easy being a father. Um, one cynic speaking of his own experience noted that children go through four fascinating stages. First, they call you da-da. Then they call you daddy. And as they mature, they call you dad. And finally, they call you dollar. <laughs> Today, we salute fathers and uh, the role of a Christian father is more important today than it ever was. Back when I was a kid in the 60s, there were mothers at work, but not to the scale that it is today. It's, it's vast, actually. And the role of father have changed because in those days, the dad would work and the mom would be home working in the house and taking care of the kids and cooking and doing those kind of things. But then the dad would come home and they'd be family. But, but I always try to say this in premarital counseling that in this day and age, the, all the rules have changed in a sense. And, and, a, and a dad or a husband cannot expect his wife to work 40 to 60 hours and then come home and, and do all the things that wives used to do. You gotta, you gotta kick in a little bit and help till I run two or three loads of laundry and then that, I was not designated as the wash boy anymore. Who said you couldn't put reds in with white clothes? I don't get that. They're not supposed to fade. We had a few red bras in the house and those kind of things. So if you know what I'm saying, I didn't know it bled. I know now. So we've got another washing machine and it says, do not touch Eddie. So I don't, I don't, not really. I'm messing with you, but that's, uh, that's pretty much the way, way it could be actually. We've got to take an active role in things at home and dad is no longer the king of the castle. However, he has not been reduced to one of the serfs or even the court jester. This mom was working in her kitchen one day to prepare this special meal, and her little boy was giving her fits, running in and out of the kitchen, ignoring his mom's threats and warnings. 
And I know that doesn't apply to any of your kids or grandkids because none of your kids ever ignore your threats or warning. But this guy did, and he ran into a, a shelf and knocked this uh, vase off and shattered in a million pieces. And she was mad, and she grabbed a broom. She said, you just wait till your dad gets home. So this little boy shot out the door and climbed under the house, and the dad gets home, and she said, you're going to have to discipline your son. You're going to have to do something about that boy. So he crawled under the house, and he crawled under and looked around, and he saw this little head and these bright eyes peering around one of the pillars, and he said in a soft voice, Dad, is she after you too? <laughs> so there you go. And sometimes that could be true, you know. We, as fathers, I have been one, in, in all honesty, this morning to shirk responsibility. I wasn't a very responsible kid. I wasn't raised that way. My grandma raised me. My sister, Barbara, tried to do all she could. But I, 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 and I haven't really grasped it. I don't like it. I still don't, but I have to fight myself to make myself do it. But nonetheless, fathers today, God has has put that responsibility on us. And I know that we can be great finger pointers and we can come up with a, a thousand excuses why we're not the man of God that God called us to be. An excuse is a lie wrapped in the skin of reason. That's what an excuse is, and we make them. Well, you know, my dad never did this. I didn't do that. I didn't go to church as a child, and I go on and on and on and on. But you cannot... Get away from what God has put on our plate as fathers. It's here. And so we have to embrace it and live it, actually. We've got to be nurturing of the children, supporting our wives, provide spiritual leadership at home that the Bible accords to us. It's a rare man, a special kind of man, who can combine all three of these qualities. So we salute Christian fathers today. To fulfill God's plan for you, Dad, you and your family, you need the heart of God. It's so the most common image, in that Jesus, image that Jesus used to describe God was that of a father. You know, we read the scripture. We don't, we don't read a lot about Joseph. We read a lot about Mary. But as we look at this and the way that Jesus grew up, and I realize that Jesus was God with skin on, but he had that human part, and that human part was taught by an earthly father, which was Joseph. In, in those days, as it should be in these days, but it's not, in the Jewish household, the dad was 100% in charge or had the responsibility to, to teach his children the scripture and about God. And evidently, Joseph did that. He, he must have. He, he almost had to. That's what I believe that he did. And why else would Jesus have chosen the imagery of father? You see, dads have a vital, how vital you're portraying God to your children and your wives really is. Many of us picture our heavenly father by the way our earthly father was. And sometimes that's good and it's sometimes not so good. So if, if you had an earthly father was abusive, that, that never told you he loved you, never hugged you, never took you on his lap and, and, and nurtured you, it is hard for us to make that connection between heart and head of what the heavenly father is like. That is why it's such a responsibility to be a dad with God's heart. That is, uh, it, it is, it's a tough business. But nonetheless, we can't shirk it. God put it on our plate. Matthew 10, 29 through 31, it's the most important scripture. reminds us of God's love for his kids. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, Jesus asked. And not one of them will fall to the ground without your father's will. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are 
of more value than many sparrows. It's a moving testimony to the intimate love of God that he has for us. But verse 28 reads like this. Don't be afraid of those who want to kill you. They can only kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. It's in there. We don't like to talk about it. We don't like to read it. But it's right here in the Word of God in Matthew 10, verse 28. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I want you to remember this this morning. People send themselves to hell because they reject Christ. It's as simple as that. They they cannot look toward heaven and say, God, this is your fault. Because it's not. He gave us an option. You accept Christ or not. So that... It kind of bothers me sometimes when people, they badmouth God because they blame that on him. Hey, it's on us. Our awesome God whom we are to fear is also the God who cares about the smallest sparrow. Jesus said that and then he set this up about how the Father cares for us. When we fear him, we have nothing to worry about because he loves us. Sparrows were the cheapest kind of food of living food sold in the market. A penny was the smallest copper coin. Sparrows were not of high value in the world. A penny could buy two of them. Yet God is so concerned for them that not one falls to the ground without God's consent. That God knows the very number of hairs on our head shows his concern about the most trifling details in all of our life. That's why I believe you should pray about everything. Nothing's too trivial for God because God is aware of everything that happens with sparrows and he knows every detail about us that we never need afraid, to be afraid. But we know sparrows will fall to the ground and God's people will die. And sometimes by even martyrdom, yet we are so valuable that God sent Jesus to die for us because God places such high values on us. And he cares about every problem, not just the big ones. This is how he feels about you and I, and that's the way we should feel about our children our entire lives. The second grader once once asked how much the earth weighed, and the teacher looked it up in the encyclopedia. 6,000 million, million, million tons, she answered. And the little boy thought for a minute and then asked, is that with or without people? It's viewed from one perspective. So as we think about inhabitants, actually microscopic inhabitants, on a tiny planet orbiting a relatively obscure star in a small galaxy, among the billions and billions of stars and galaxies that make up creation, Yet the God of creation has counted the very hairs on our head, all 7.4 billion of us. That's an amazing thing. And what you and I mean to the Heavenly Father, we are loved by God. But as we read the scripture, we see the positive and we see the negative. He tells both sides of the story, God does. The troubling side to this truth is spares do fall from the skies. It happens all the time. Jets suck them up in those engines. Predators prey upon their young. Storms or droughts can deprive them of their food. Kids with BB guns try to kill them, and sometimes they're successful. In reality, here's truths about God this morning. First truth is this. The Father's love does not protect them from life's tragedies. Neither does it protect us. And we who have matured in Christ understand that. But those who haven't, it's always the question, why, 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 why? We ask. We don't, we don't get it. It is the troubling truth, but it is true. Sparrows innocent, sparrows do fall. Thornton Wilder dealt with this hard truth in the bridge of San Luis Rey. A village had been hit with this pestilence, and Brother Juniper seeks to understand the meaning, if any. 
But so he rates 15 people who have lied, and he rates the 15 people that who have died on qualities of goodness and integrity and godliness and usefulness. And then he adds up the totals, the victims, and compares them with the survivors. And his figures show that the dead were five times more worth saving than the ones that were. So this unexpected result causes Brother Juniper great distress of mind as it does us. The Father does not protect us from life's problems. And I ask you that have small children, would you protect your young from life's problems if you could? And I know we try. We try desperately. Sometimes we're even over too, too protective, perhaps. It's tempting, isn't it? Deep in our heart, you would like to build a protective bubble around your children that nothing can touch them. After all, when they hurt, we hurt. When someone abuses them, it's us who gets killing mad, if you will. When they are confronting crisis, it is us who toss and turn in our beds with sleeplessness. We would like to protect them from every hurt, but what would happen if we did? They would never grow into responsible, competent, mature adults. Overcoming obstacles produces character and competence in these kids. God has placed us in a world that is designed to bring the best out of us if we deal with life in an attitude of faith and love. That does not mean God has forsaken us or forgotten us. It simply means that the world is a training school designed to produce souls fit to share eternity with him. There's a second truth related to this one. The Father's love does not protect us from life's problems, but neither are life's problems God's punishment upon our sins. And some believe that. It was bad enough that Job had sores all over his body. To add insult to injury, his friends accused him of deserving his wretched condition. Jesus' disciples saw a bland mind begging. Who sinned, they asked Jesus, that he should be in this condition? And then I've even heard this before. God must be angry. My child's sickness is my punishment for my sin. What a petty God that this person might have, or what a petty God it would be to injure a helpless child in order to punish them. Grief is tragic enough without adding a crushing burden of guilt. Here is where the theology of the cross becomes critical. You and I live under the rule of grace. That is, we believe that something happened on the cross of Calvary that forever changed the relationship to God. That a God who is holy and just could lick upon sinful man, Jesus paid that price for us. So that's why I always say, when you look at the cross and you see those vivid pictures of the, of the torn flesh and the blood and the agony, that's my sin and that's your sin on that. That is why we should exclaim the greatness of God 24-7 because of that, you'll see. But here's the, here's, the, here's the difference on that. I believe that we are free moral agents. In a lawful world, and we have to live with the consequences of our misdoings, God does not get us out of that. If I abuse my body, sooner or later it'll catch up with me. If I cheat on my income tax, if I get caught, Uncle Sam may punish me. If I get caught speeding, chances are I'm going to pay a fine. We cannot live above human law as followers of Christ, and we definitely cannot live above God's law as well. It will eventually catch up to us. You read in the scripture that your sin will find you out. It might be immediate, might be a week, a month, a year, might be 10 years, but somewhere, somehow, some way, that sin always catches up with us. 
And heaven forbid if you and I see God's grace as cheap grace, as a license to sin. I've heard that excuse before. Do you know and truly understand what God's grace really is? Grace, the undeserved favor of God to man, because he loves us and chooses us, he saves and enables us to become like him by grace as a gift of love. And some want to make God's grace cheap grace. Cheap grace is the idea that we can sin and reap no consequences because God will forgive us when we confess. And the Bible responds in five ways. One, God's grace isn't cheap. It costs Jesus dearly. No one who loves Christ willingly and casually inflicts suffering on him. Two, God is holy. He hates sin. If we love him, we won't do what he hates. Three, we fled to Christ and died with him in order to escape the bondage of sin. Who in the right mind would choose to go back to that slavery once he has been freed? Four, confession is empty if it is not an expression of repentance. And five, Galatians 6, 7, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. We may escape eternal death by throwing ourselves on God's mercy, but God usually lets us reap partial, even severe consequences of our action to teach us maturity. It's called chastisement, and it's called discipline, and he does not get us out of it. Who, who, hasn't, who hasn't got themselves in a fix and wanted to, for God to get them out of it? I have. The story about Henry Fonda that kind of helps us in this vein. Fonda's father disagreed with his son's decision to become an actor, and only grudgingly did he attend his son's performance, debut of performance. So after the performance... Fonda's mother and sister glowed with pride and were effusive in their praise, effusive. His father, however, said nothing until one of the sisters made a tiny criticism of Henry's performance. Shut up, said the elder Fonda, he was perfect. Now we know that Henry Fonda was not perfect, no one is, but his father saw him that way. And you and I are not perfect, we have a long way to go. It's my definition of the church, we are all messed up and we need God and each other to get through life. You agree with that? It's how I see it. I want to be perfect. I strive, but I I continually have bad thoughts or say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. And God forgives me and and I move on. But we we really need each other. I, I I can't reiterate that enough. And I tell you something else in this whole vein of needing each other. A lot of that's accountability. When we see another brother or sister doing something that's hurting them, we need to go to them, put our arms out, I love you, and oh, I hate to see you hurting yourself. It's not the fact that you're hammering them. That makes sense to me. But God sees us as perfect. That, that's a, this, this is hard for me to grasp. The Jehovah God sitting on the throne in glory, in majesty, the creator of all that is, can look down on this planet and see me as perfect, because I'll guarantee nobody else does. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's unbelievable to me, it, it, but that's the way he sees us. That's what it means to live under grace. Father's love does not protect us from problems, neither are all our problems God's punishment for our sin. Sparrows fall from the sky because they are part of a lawful, <coughs> excuse me, universe in which unfortunate tragedies do occur. But listen, here is the good news. Number three, the little sparrow never falls beyond the watchful eye of the father. 
The child of God who knows that he or she is under the watchful eye of the Father can by grace bear any burden, triumph over any tragedy, get on top of any circumstance because he knows that he's not alone. Remember St. Paul's litany of his misfortunes. This is an amazing man that went through these things. Five different times the Jews gave me 39 lashes. Not once, but five. Do the math. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, and he was dragged out of Lystra. He was dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I have traveled many weary miles. I have faced dangers from flooded rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the stormy seas. And I have faced danger from men who claim to be Christians but are not. I have lived with weariness and pain and sleepless nights. Often I have been hungry and thirsty and have gone without food. Often I have shivered with cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Can you imagine if that was you and I, how many of us would be standing and shaking our fists at God? Man, God, what's the deal with this? I didn't sign up for this. Not Paul. Yet you, he heard the Lord's voice saying in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. This other stuff's really relevant. What you need to understand is that my grace is sufficient to you. My gracious favor is all you need. My power works best in your weakness. Because let's face it, followers of Christ get cancer, and they're not healed. Chemo and radiation doesn't work, and they die. You can't, you can't rationalize that away. But praise God, the ones that God spares and leaves on this earth for a little bit longer. And I don't know why that, that is, but it's a fact. Followers of Christ do suffer greatly. Followers of Christ do face crisis and tragedy. Followers of Christ do face premature death. Followers of Christ suffer great loss. Followers of Christ's children sometimes rebel and walk away from the faith. Followers of Christ's children get sick, and sometimes they die young. And we do not understand that. It, it, it's, it's an enigma. For many of us, the injustice in this world combined with the love of the Father is the best assurance we have of a world beyond this one, that heaven's going to be better than this. Someday, somehow, somewhere, accounts must be settled in Marjorie Rollins' novel, The Yearling, set in rural Florida. There's a scene where friends and family around, gather around the grave of a little handicapped boy named Fodderwing. There was no pastor present, so one of the men of the community offered up this simple but moving prayer, and this is what he prayed. Almighty God, it ain't right for us to say what is right. But if we had been making this boy, we would have never made him with his back bent and his legs crooked. We would have made him straight and tall like his brothers. But somehow you made it up to him. You gave him away with critters. It comforts us to know that he is in a place where he's being bent doesn't matter no more. We would like to think that you have taken that bent back and those crooked legs and straightened them. And almighty God, if it ain't enough to ask, we pray that you will will give him some critters to play with. Maybe a few red birds and a squirrel or two. Thy will be done. Amen. I don't know what heaven's going to be like. I know what God's like. He's like a father who notices a little sparrow that falls out of the sky, and he cares for us more, much, much more than he does those sparrows. That means even though we must face obstacles and crises, we do not face them alone. 
And someday, somehow, somewhere, all that is hurtful will be turned into that which is helpful, and we shall live with joy in the Father's house forever. Amen? The responsibility of us as human fathers is to show our wives and children the Father's love, what it really is, and to do that we have to have the heart of God. And that heart of God says this here to us this morning in Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you, my people, with an everlasting love. With unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. God says that to us, and dads, we need to communicate that to our children daily. And you might have strained relationships between father and children. I don't know that this morning. You want to show that last slide? Jordan, you got it? That's okay. It was, a, it was about a, it was a, being a prodigal, and I, I've been a prodigal before, and I'll, I, I probably will again. And being a prodigal, when you, you come back to church on Sunday, sometimes it, it's a little tough because the Holy Spirit's convicting you. But like I've said before, I spent a lot of time at one of these uh, as God convicted me. And uh, I came back, and I came home probably hundreds of times, but uh, like that, God was always waiting. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. And who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? <laughs> I don't know where you're at spiritually this morning, but if you're here and you don't know Christ, we'd sure be glad to show you how to do that. If you're here as a father, I pray that you pray for your kids. As a grandpa, your grandkids, and you do it every day. And you need to pray for somebody this morning, come on up. Dad, if you need prayed for to be a better dad, this altar is open for you as we sing.